Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I get to interview all sorts of innovators and leaders. Uh, pretty excited today on the show of Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So uh, you do a lot of cool things. Uh, Editor-in-chief at Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, multiple podcasts, uh, speaker. Uh, but I think the most exciting thing to talk about is your new book, uh, which I have bought myself on Audible, uh, been furiously reading, and uh, already left my five-star Amazon review. But uh, can you tell people about the I book? I appreciate that. Sure. So, um, I mean, look, here's what we're, we're obviously nobody wants to tune into a book, um, uh, a book sales pitch. So I'll tell you about the book by way of telling you about this thing that I have found by spending years and years talking to the most incredible, important thinkers and leaders today. And that is that the most important skill is the ability to be adaptable. I, I just have found that when I look across the incredible people that I meet, people who are building industry-changing companies, but also people who are just building things that that serve people's needs and that 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 provide a great life for themselves, that the single most important thing that they can do across that time is to recognize that everything that they do is likely going to change and that they need to build that realization into the way in which they operate and that they need to understand themselves at a level deeper than the thing that they happen to do every day because that itself is going to change too. And the more adaptable that we can be, the more that we recognize that the greatest opportunities are going to come from the changes that are going to feel the scariest, that, that is what drives success. So that's what the that's what the book is. The book is called Build for Tomorrow. And it's it's me walking people through how change happens. It's in four phases, I argue. Panic, adaptation, new normal, and then wouldn't go back. That moment where you say I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And then helping people get there. Well, I like I said, I'm really enjoying the book. Um uh I'm I'm gonna steal one of your things and you can tell if you like it or not, but I Great. I have a theory that in many ways it's related to stoicism like i my uh, my way of explaining stoicism is it's like a surfer where kind of like very little benefit is made by complaining about the wave and all of your benefit is made by like learning about it observing it getting in the right position learning how to surf but like mm -hmm. all these technological changes or all these things that are happening like you you can try and fight it but energy spent trying to stop the wave is is probably uh, not that helpful learning about it, figuring out what you're going to do about it can be exceedingly helpful. Would you agree with that or disagree yeah, with that? I No, I think that that's a great way of, that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, I mean, you know, look, the funny thing is that when you zoom far enough out, a lot of the most successful ideas and communicators are all saying roughly the same thing. Uh, but the question is, how are they connecting it to something that's going to feel so relevant to you that you're going to remember it and absorb it? I, I, I recently was talking to a academic who studies how people learn. And she said, the most important part of learning is what researchers called scaffolding. Uh, scaffolding basically means that the thing that you're going to remember is something that attaches to an existing infrastructure of knowledge inside of your brain. And so the, that, the reason why, for example, the average person, myself included, can read a story about some intergalactic phenomenon, right? Some interesting black hole. And I find it totally fascinating when I'm reading it in the New York Times. And then five minutes after I read the article, I couldn't tell you a single thing that I learned. 
The reason for that is scaffolding, because I don't have an existing body of knowledge about this thing that I'm reading about, and therefore the new information has nothing to attach itself to. And so what we need to do as we understand the world around our, uh, ourselves and, and find insights and new ways to build and grow and, and, and understand ourselves is we need to figure out what part of that story and, 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 and how can this information attach to a way in which I already understand the world. These philosophies like Stoicism are a really useful way to do that because if, if, if somebody is interested in it, then you can build up this interesting body of knowledge and well-defined philosophies have a kind of on-ramp on. And, um, and so it becomes a way in which you can organize the world. It, that stuff doesn't particularly, like the Stoicism stuff doesn't particularly appeal to me, not because there's anything wrong with Stoicism, but just because I'm kind of like, it's just sort of, it's not my personality. <laughs> I just I kind of don't, I don't connect with it. So I found these other ways to connect with it, mostly through stories and through understanding how people have thought through challenges. And then I attach them to the way that I think through challenges. And this is the reason why I like to tell information through stories is because I find that when I tell a story, people see themselves in the story and therefore the lesson of the story sticks with them more because now it feels like a personal revelation rather than just some kind of academic thing that I've told them. But yeah, I think that's a good connection. Well, you know, it's funny though, it actually reveals more about my, why I chose that example of, because I grew up a snowboarder in Canada and, and got to move to Southern California and pick up surfing, but I was already in my 20s. And I spent mm -hmm. just way too many hours sitting there trying to figure out how to catch a wave and being a bad <laughs> surfer. That it, that that's probably that scaffolding for me that attacked. That's why the analogy is probably more meaningful to me is because of my experience there, where for other people it might be more fleeting, right? Um, oh, yeah. That's a, I, that's a great, I mean, that's a great insight. And look, all that matters is that you found a way in to a organizing principle that you find helpful. And that, that's ultimately what I, you know, I mean, look, if you, you could go out and check out every best-selling business book in, uh, in the library, and um, a lot of them are going to be telling you the same thing. But the question is, how do they tell it to you? And how do they relate it to something that you find really hits home? Um, I, you know, I, I find it totally fascinating that I, you know, I, I, my goal is to post on social media every single day. And the number one DM that I get from people is in response to whatever it is that I posted that day. And they say, I really needed to hear that today. And what a fascinating insight that is, right? I, I'm, I'm often kind of reframing common experiences or, or insights. Um, you know, like yesterday or today or something, I posted a, sort of a, one of those images of like, it sort of looks like a tweet, but you actually just made it in Canva. Uh, and it says, uh, you are someone's solution. Because I was thinking about how funny it is that, like, you know, we walk around trying to, like, sell things. But actually what we need is to think about how we are walking around as the solution to somebody's problem. And the thing that we need to do is, like, find the people with the problem and help them understand that we have that solution. And when you think about it like that, you think, well, I'm not selling anything. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm like, I, I'm, I, it is my responsibility to help people who have the problem that I know how to solve. And what a great shift that is. And, you know, it's not the most revolutionary idea in the world, but it catches people at a moment in which they're grappling with how to connect with somebody or, or how, to, how to reframe their own offering. And these little moments, these little insights sometimes make all the difference. You know, um, 
I want to talk about the book, but maybe a question first is, mm -hmm. there are so many writers that would like to achieve what you've achieved. Um, you know, your time at Fast Company, obviously the top spot at, at Entrepreneur, and, mm -hmm. and they're objectively good writers, and they, they've checked so many of the supposed to boxes, and yet they haven't been able to achieve what you've achieved. What do you think you've done differently? Part of it is that I was in the right place at the right time, which is, I think, has to be a factor in anybody's success. But a big part of it, the stuff that I was able to control, is that I made a decision pretty early in my career that I was going to focus almost exclusively on skill set building over anything else, uh, which is to say that I took jobs based not on whether or not I was interested in what that publication was writing about, because often I wasn't, but rather whether that publication and that role was able to help me fill in a gap in my own abilities, and then to be very aware of my limitations. And so, and, and, then, and, then, and then to, with every opportunity, push myself into the opportunities that were available to me, but that nobody was asking me to do. You know, I, I have this philosophy called work your next job, which basically says that in front of everybody, there are two sets of opportunities, opportunity set A and opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's asked of you. So that is, you know, you go to work and you have a boss and that boss expects you to do things and you're evaluated by whether or not you do those things. That's opportunity set A. Then there's opportunity set B, which is everything that's available to you that nobody is asking you to do, either at work where you join a new team or Outside of work, where you know, like you, you started a podcast because uh, maybe because you liked podcasts, and uh, and um, and wouldn't you know it, it, it actually opened up all sorts of other opportunities. Nobody asked you to start a podcast. Nobody asked me to start a podcast. And my argument is that opportunity set B is always more important, infinitely more important, because if you only focus on the thing that's asked of you, then you're only qualified to do the thing you're already doing. But opportunity set B is where growth happens. So I've always pushed myself to. To basically ask these these two things of of every moment of my career, which is uh, number one, what don't I know that the next opportunity can help fill in for me? That's why I would. That's why I took a job at Men's Health. You think I care about Men's Health? I didn't care about Men's Health at all, but I sure did care about the kind of editing that they do at Men's Health because I knew that that would be incredibly important for me. Um, I went to Maxim. Maxim. Maxim was a terrible place to work. I hated it. But it was a deputy editor position, which was the first time that I got management experience. And I thought that that was a really important thing for me to get. And so I'm thinking about skills over, oh, I just really like to write about this or whatever. And then also at every opportunity, I'm thinking, what is available to me now that wasn't before? And right now, it is, as editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, for example, what's available to me? People will let me speak on stage. And in fact, they'll pay me for it if I get good at it, which I spent years focusing on doing. They'll put me on television. Um, I can write a book and people will read it. it. You know, these things that nobody's asking me to do. My, my, my job doesn't require any of these things. It doesn't require me to be here talking to you right now. But boy, has it built me into a very different kind of person and, a, and, a, um, and, and I think a a person with just far more market value, frankly, but also that I, I'm 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 connecting with and helping people in a way that I never did before, and I find that infinitely gratifying. So, how did I get here? You know, the answer was that I didn't try to get here. I, I just tried to build. Well, you know, it it has a lot in common. Um, last week we had um, uh, 
the guy who is the head of all counterterrorism for the entire CIA. And before mm. that, we had two Delta Force uh, operators on. And they talk about the all the advantages of skill stacking and having this multidisciplinary approach. And like, especially yeah. like, so one of the guys would do a lot of singleton missions for Delta, where like, there's mm -hmm. no support. He doesn't even have a buddy, right? And it's like, wow. you are your own support. Like you are your own quick reaction force. And he's like, knowing how to fix the muffler as it fell off on a mountain pass in Afghanistan is not a typical, is not a typical jog requirement, but boy, it came in handy. You know? And like, yeah. And and they really are, especially the, those highest levels of special operations. You're probably familiar with this, but like they are, they are really quite multidisciplinary, and uh, and shocking. It's like they're good at like woodworking or like plant identification and just like stuff that you don't think of <laughs> from tough guys. And yet they say say like you're just shocked at how it comes in handy because you need to relate to someone or you need to do something that normally somebody else was supposed to get done for you, but this is a no fail mission and it's just got to happen now. And so I don't know if you relate to that. And, at all. And I do. I mean, I don't relate to the to the specifics of their mission. Obviously, they're they're doing <laughs> a more high risk and um, uh, and and you know uh, uh, important work than than me showing up at work every day and writing articles. But um, but I definitely relate to the critical importance of building skills that you don't know the ROI on. Uh, I you know I I like to think that we are all functionally on like a zigzag path. And that the path makes sense when you look back upon it, because this opportunity led to meeting this person, which led to this thing over here, and then they went over there. But it doesn't otherwise seem like it makes any sense. And um, and what we need to be open to is simply that at every moment of our lives, we have the opportunity to open doors in the future that we cannot see yet. because. That's really it. I mean, look, I every day by doing things that I don't exactly know the ROI on are are I'm surely setting myself up for some kind of greater success later. The re one of the reasons that I have the job at, as editor in chief of Entrepreneur Magazine is because when I was at Fast Company, I was a print magazine editor, and they started a video department. And although zero people asked me to stand in front of that camera, I volunteered, and I got in front of it and the director this guy scott said you know you're not half bad um but why don't you try this and this and this and you know you should like move your face because you look like you're a statue and uh and in doing that i learned how to be good or good enough on camera and that led to interesting new opportunities because then i could go on television and you know talk about stuff or i could go on stage and and uh and and produce more video and then flash forward a number of years and like, did anybody give me a television show? No. But when I was interviewing to be editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, one of the things that the CEO and entrepreneur and, and president really liked about me was that they knew that I could be a good advocate for the brand, that I could go out in public and represent the brand and they could trust me to do that well because of this experience that I had over there. Now, I couldn't have possibly known that one would lead to the other, but that's beside the point. The point isn't to know the ROI on something, but rather just to do it because it excites you and interests you and because you can see how it builds value, even if you don't exactly know how it's going to pay off later. Again, it's the zigzag. It's the, Think of it as the zigzag theory, and you just you need to give yourself enough each time 
so that that next line is going to move forward, even if it's in a completely unpredictable direction. Can we go through a couple of your favorite stories from the book? Sure, absolutely. Is there a, uh, is there something you want to prompt me with, or should I just like pick one? No, I want to hear what your favorites were. Oh, okay. So the book contains stories from history and then stories from entrepreneurs. And I really like that mix because the entrepreneurs are the expected stuff and then the history is, is sort of unexpected. Um, but I find that history, well, number one, history is great because the story has already been told. So whereas entrepreneurs are working on things that we don't know, but we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, history, we do know how decisions that were made led to results. And so that's more interesting to me in a way as a, as a kind of anecdote. Uh, and then, um, and then also because I feel like you need to, I feel like all good media. And I, as I say that, I'm trying to think of if I can expand this out beyond media, I'll just say it for media. And then maybe you can tell me if you think that it goes beyond is, um, has to be a mix of, um, predictability and surprise. So, you know, the predictability is somebody is coming to a producer of media, whether that's me or that's Entrepreneur Magazine or whatever, 17 Magazine. And, um, and, and you're coming because you understand in some way how this, fits, how this fits into your life. There's something in your life that you want to improve or that you want to add to, even if it's just, I'm looking for entertainment. And you believe that this provider will predictably deliver that. But the surprise is that you don't know how they're going to do it on a day-to-day -day basis. And because if you did, then it would be boring, right? And if, if every time that you picked up Entrepreneur Magazine, it contained the exact same stories from the month before, well, then that, that's, there's no surprise there. Um, so you need predictability, but, the, but you, don't, you can't have bad surprise. You can't pick up Entrepreneur Magazine and open it up and it's Vanity Fair because that's weird, right? So that's a bad surprise. So you need predictability and surprise, uh, but it has to be the right balance of the two. And uh, and so I, what I like is that I, um, if I'm on point and I'm delivering value, valuable ideas to people, that's the predictability. That's what they came for. But then the surprise is these stories from history that are not what people expect. And then when I relate them back to principles of, of business today, then people um, people are delighted. Uh, so, so here, I'll tell you one that, that is, is one of my favorites. So in the, here's the setup. The setup is this. One of the greatest mistakes that innovators make is that they are not aware of a, of a very common problem. And the very, pro very common problem is that they are so familiar with the value of the thing that they have made so they've spent all this time making it. They understand its value so much that they forget that other people don't understand it nearly as well as they do. And as a result of that, when they try to deliver that value, to convince other people of that value, to introduce that value, sometimes people are, people are like, I don't know what you're talking about, or this looks awful, uh, or this, this is a terrible burden upon my life. and um, and that can be deeply frustrating. And it can also mean that, you know, it's like the best ideas uh, are completely worthless unless somebody's willing to adopt them. So let me tell you a story from history that illustrates that and drives to my solution to that problem. So uh, in the, the 1800s, the automobile is introduced and 
People don't call it the automobile back then. They call it the horseless carriage. And that's if they're being generous. If they're not being generous, then they call it the devil wagon because they hated these things. They found them offensive. They, um, they found them, um, you know, kind of noisy intrusions on their lives. People literally threw rocks at uh, horseless carriages. If you drove down the street in a horseless carriage in the 1800s, somebody would stand on the street corner and they would yell, get a horse at you. Like literally, get a horse. And so what is it that, that happened that got us from get a horse to cars are the dominant mode of transportation around the world? Well, a lot of people say the answer to that is Henry Ford, that Henry Ford revolutionized manufacturing and therefore he made cars cheaper and more accessible to uh, the average person. And that drove adoption. And true as that is, that actually skips over a really important moment that Henry Ford was the beneficiary of. And I heard this from a historian of the automobile. And it goes like this. In the early days, the automobile industry is trying to figure out what is going on that's wrong. And they, they realize, you know, we've been advertising the car as a replacement to the horse. But people like their horses. Nobody's looking for you to replace their horse. In fact, people have had horses in their family for generations. And they find it pretty obnoxious, actually, that you would come along and say, hey, this thing that you've been doing forever is stupid and you should get rid of it and get our innovation instead. Right? Sort of the 1800s version of Silicon Valley tech bros. And so what can we learn from that? Well, here's, here's what we can learn. People don't like new things. They just don't. They don't like new things. You know what they like? They like better versions of old things. That's what they like. And if we are to introduce great new value to them, then we better understand the old thing that they like and how we can improve upon that rather than create something that seems like either a burden to them or too much work or just too much change because people don't aren't looking for you to like disrupt their lives. They're looking for you to improve their lives. Nobody wants disruption. And so what does the car industry do, the nascent car industry? Well, they stop talking about the car as a replacement to the horse, and they start talking about the car as a better horse. They start using words like horsepower. They start describing cars in terms of horses. They start naming cars after horses, which is something we still do today with the Bronco and Mustang and all those. And they start putting like metal horse heads on the front of cars, which we don't do today, but you get the idea. And as a result, they what they did is they created a space for people to envision how this fits into their lives. And people aren't stupid. They understand that a car is not a horse. But this gave them a framework to say, oh yeah, I see how this could work for me. I see how this, this fits into things that I need. Um, and as a result... What the car industry had done is they had built a bridge of familiarity. That, I believe, is what we really need to do whenever we are introducing change to others, is we need to build a bridge of familiarity. And that bridge does not start with us and go to the person we're trying to reach. It starts with them, and then they build that, then you build that bridge from them to you. And what does that look like? Look, that can that can mean any number of things. I, I, I'm like delighted when I see the bridge of familiarity show up in, uh, in the world today. Uh, recently, I was talking to uh, this guy who runs Wild, this company called Wild Brands, and they make these chips that they used to, they used to advertise as, like the, the branding was that they were chicken chips. And they could not figure out 
why even though these things were very successful in taste tests, nobody was buying them. And eventually they realized it was because chicken chips sounds disgusting. And so instead, they, sh they changed the terminology to protein chips. Now, protein chips make sense. People already have protein bars and protein shakes. Protein's got to come from somewhere. In this case, it comes from chicken. And so just that change of going from chicken chips to protein chips completely unlocked growth for this company. That was building a bridge of familiarity, understanding where people already are, and then building to you. I love that example. That's so great. Um, you know, you've had a chance to meet so many high-profile people and famous people. Um, and, and I think about, like, I've been able to meet some of my heroes on this show, but, but you've been able mm -hmm. to go, like, a level above where I've been. <laughs> who, was, who was surprisingly awesome? Like, who, who didn't disappoint? Who, did, who was really great? Uh, I'll tell you. Okay, so for, there are a couple of ways to come into that question. Uh, the, the first person who comes to mind, and then I feel like I just want to, like, address the kind of underlying um, thinking of that question, which is interesting. The first person who comes to mind is Ryan Reynolds, who maybe isn't surprisingly awesome because he's kind of already awesome and people really like him. But I, I had known that he, and maybe other people know this, that in addition to being an actor, he had become a, an owner of Mint Mobile and Aviation Gin, and he'd started this advertising agency called Maximum Effort. But until you get somebody on the phone, you don't know how insightful they really are and particularly someone who spent the majority of their career as in entertainment, like how 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 fluent is this guy going to be in this space? And I got to tell you, he was just so smart. He was really thoughtful about storytelling. We had a really interesting conversation about how much he really loves budgetary limitations, because the first thing you know he sees it in movies. If you have a large budget, the first thing that you do is you start spending it on like crazy special effects and alien invasions and whatever. And like, that's not the thing that actually makes people love a story. What makes people love a story is the very human insights, uh, the thing that like connects that you see yourself in. And sometimes having too much money and having too much whiz bang really detracts from that. So he loves now making commercials with incredibly um, strict limitations. And, uh, but the thing that he said to me that resonated the most was he said, he said, we were talking about how he learned these new industries. He said, to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. And I really loved that because, you know, most people, when they start out, they are discouraged by how they are not as good at something that they, as they, they wanted to be or thought they could be. And there is, as Ira Glass from This American Life uh, has, has astutely pointed out, you know, there's a at the very beginning of, of trying anything, there's a massive gap between your tastes and your abilities. Your tastes are very good. You know what good looks like. Your abilities are very bad because you're just starting out. And that's deeply frustrating to know what good looks like and not be able to produce it yourself. And so Ryan is saying, look, everybody is bad at the start. And therefore, the thing that separates people isn't whether or not they are good at something at the very beginning, but rather whether or not they are able to tolerate being bad for long enough to get to good. There's a wonderful observation. Now, to your like broader, I, I have to say, I, so I get to meet a lot of celebrities through Entrepreneur Magazine and then prior to that through you know, other media. And I, I am actually generally 
pretty delighted by them. Um, I, I, I've only had a, a small handful of negative experiences. Oftentimes, I find that people who are very successful are, are very thoughtful about what it took to get there. And they're really insightful about something that is fundamental to not just their success, but to anybody's success. And like my job, I, I always feel like when I sit down with somebody is to just try to figure that out. Like what is the thing that, that they figured out that the average person who is not Ryan Reynolds and never will be can build into their own businesses. And I have found that in Michelle Pfeiffer and Dwayne The Rock Johnson and, uh, and you know, whatever. But, 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 but interestingly, and this is, I guess, the other thing that I, I've learned from these experiences is that um, I, people sometimes ask me, like, who, would I, who would I most like to interview? And I have no answer to that question. And the reason is because, well, number one, I kind of don't lionize people. Like, I don't have heroes, but I, I have found, I, I don't care that much about pop culture. So, um, so oftentimes when I interview people, I haven't really seen much of their work. Like Ryan Reynolds, I, I enjoy Deadpool, but I'm not sure I've seen like anything else that he's made. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a long time talking to Jimmy Fallon. He was wonderful. I'm not sure I've ever watched an episode of the Today Show or Tonight Show. Um, uh, Norman Reedus, I did a cover on from The Walking Dead. I've never seen an episode, but I go in just thinking this is a person who's figured something out, and I want to help. I want to understand what it is, um, and just connect with them on a human level, and like who cares about their work. And I found that that has that has led to the most fascinating, insightful conversations. And therefore, I never want to limit who I think I could learn from just because I happen to know something about them or because I think that on the surface level, what they do is interesting. Because getting to know someone at a human level is always more interesting than whatever it is they do. Yeah. I love that answer. Um, so I've got a follow-up question. But before yeah. we do that... Um, Obviously, I think everybody listening should be going and getting their own copy of your book. Uh, Thank you. Uh, but will you also tell people about your podcasts? Oh, yeah, sure. So, yeah, so the book and the podcast have the same name, which is Build for Tomorrow. And the podcast is, it started years and years ago because I was very curious about why fears repeat over time. So why are the things that we say today about social media exactly the same things that people said about radio or about the novel? Um, and what can we learn by understanding these repetitions of fear? And then this evolved into a greater curiosity about like what we get wrong about new things and then what we get wrong about change in general. And it sort of evolved into, into the kinds of stuff that I'm, I'm sharing right now. And so now the podcast is a real mix of all that stuff where uh you know some episodes i am curious about uh the participation trophy which a lot of cultural curmudgeons will say is the reason why young people today uh have no drive right ah it's cuz they all got participation trophies when they were in youth sports but you know what you idiots Participation trophies have been around for a hundred years, and they were a good thing for the majority of that time. You know where participation trophies come from? They they actually come out of World War One, 
um, uh, youth sports was a fairly new thing at the time. It was it was youth sports was invented when school became mandatory and parents were like, OK, well, now what do I do with my children when they are not in school? Because they used to like work at a factory, but they can't do that anymore because that's been outlawed. So what are they supposed to do? The answer is youth sports. But then World War One comes along and, you know, now we're like facing life and death stakes. And people are starting to feel like, mm, you know, the amount of competitiveness that's showing up in youth sports is possibly unhealthy. And so um, a lot of schools started to cancel their youth sports programs, uh, which gave rise to private programs like Little League that we still have today. But anyway, the solution to like, how do we get people to feel comfortable sending our kids to sports is participation trophies. Participation trophies was a, participation trophies was a solution to a problem. And the problem was um, too much competitiveness. And that pretty much held until the 90s when everybody just decided that participation trophies were bad. And, I, you know, I find these stories completely fascinating because they challenge our oversimplified understanding of the world. And I, I really I believe that in in like just as a as a as a as a citizen of the of the of your country and a citizen of the world, um, but also as a creator or a business leader or whatever, like one of the worst things that we can do is oversimplify problems. Because if you oversimplify a problem, then you will actually inhibit your ability to come up with a meaningful solution. And I see people do that all the time. And so the podcast is is often, it kind of comes out of my own sort of instinct to go down crazy rabbit holes and like see something and then just start calling a million people to find out answers. Um, but, but the, the general theme of it is like the world is more complicated than we make it out to be. And that's a good thing. Well, uh, I've started skimming some of the episodes already and they're good. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, listen, you, you get interviewed a lot. You get asked a lot of things. What's something you don't get asked enough or what's something you want to end with today? Oh, you know, the funny thing about unknown unknowns uh, is that you don't know what they are. Right? You know, Donald, Donald Rumsfeld famously said, you know, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. And people made fun of him, but that actually, came, I don't know if people remember that. That was out of a press conference in the lead up to the Iraq invasion. And um, and people made fun of him for that, and it sounded like weird Rumsfeldian poetry. But actually, it came out of the Johari window, which was this 1970s um, kind of personality assessment that, uh, or situational assessment that the military actually finds quite useful, which is the reason why it was on Donald Rumsfeld's mind. And I think about that quite a lot uh, because we are all surrounded by unknown unknowns. And one of the greatest things that we can do for ourselves is, is be like alert to that there are always things that we don't know, but that other people do. And whenever we catch a glimpse of that, of somebody in our space doing something that seems to work for reasons that we cannot understand, we better go understand that uh, because possibly that is the either the pathway to success for us or it is a signal that we in our current mode are about to be outmoded. And so I, I really love uh, thinking about those unknown unknowns, but the problem with the question in <laughs> the way that you asked me is that I, I don't know what, pe I don't go, um, I sort of don't carry around a, like, I wish that people would ask me about uh, how I don't have a sense of smell, which is true. You could ask me about that. It's sort of random. But um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. What's, um, what's on your mind? What, 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 do you, what, what don't your guests uh, speak to often enough? Well, I'll just, here's, here's what I want to talk about for our last thing then. Is, sure. Um, and your Ryan Reynolds quote um, really 
is poignant to this. And it's one of my favorite things from the book so far about getting excited about the second one. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I've done 800 episodes. You're actually episode number 800, actually. Today. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and Lucky 800. Uh, but for me, the next skills are, are books in YouTube. Like I, mm. I, you know, if you don't count three or 400 Jason Bourne genre books, I've listened to maybe uh, 900 business and philosophy and marketing and, and those kind of books in the last wow. uh, dozen years or so. I do, you know, two to four books a week. I, I, like it's my obsession. That's incredible. And I've started about a half dozen books. And I finally decided, I think the first started one I'm going to finish you started, is. You started writing a half dozen books? Yes. Okay. And I think the first one I'm going to finish is just taking 25 of the people who've been on the show who've grown businesses from zero to a billion themselves, like founders, and just kind of go through all those interviews and pull my favorite insights from all these different folks and, and do kind of just a collection of principles. It could be like, you know, a principle a day kind of a thing. Yeah. And, um, and I'm not the best writer, like objectively. <laughs> And, uh, and so, but I, I loved what you talked about. I believe it was when you were talking about speaking, yeah. but this idea of like, I can't wait to do the second one of like, oh, it's okay. I'll just get through this. Or like YouTube, you know, we put these episodes on YouTube, but like, I haven't made YouTube videos where it's like yeah. YouTube, the format. And it's, it's for sure the thing I consume the most behind books. I love it. Uh, it, it is fascinating and interesting to me. And I, I feel like I have gained so much by the entrepreneurs and investors who've been willing to share. Like, I can't believe YouTube is free for, it's been more valuable than a college education for me. So yeah. I like, I care about the format, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to kind of suck at it at first. Yeah. And I liked your point about like getting excited about the second. And so oh, if you have anything to add to it. Wow. I, ha I mean, I have like so much to say about a lot of what you just said. So let me, let me, um, let me try to do as much of it as I can retain. So number one, what you're referencing there is that, I tell this story about how the very first time that I ever gave a keynote, which now I, I have a healthy business doing, but you know, back then I was brand new to entrepreneur. I nobody had ever asked me to get on stage and address a room full of entrepreneurs before. I didn't really know how to do it. And I didn't know that I didn't have the skill set. And I also didn't really know the audience as well as I I as I do now. And so I but I fly out to Scottsdale, Arizona because I've been asked to do this. It was actually an entrepreneur event, and we had Marcus Limonis headlining. So I'm opening up for Marcus Limonis, and I had practiced, I'd written or like kind of concepted out this talk. I don't write out my talks because you shouldn't memorize the thing that you're going to say because it, it'll just be a disaster. So I had sort of outlined it and then did it enough times that it was in my head, um, and then uh, practice it and practice it. And then I'm standing at the side of the stage, and this guy is introducing me. And I'm looking out at the, all these assembled Scottsdale, Arizona entrepreneurs, and um, they are waiting for somebody, me, to walk out and like say something that's going to matter to them. And I am thinking, I don't know what the hell uh, is this is going to be like and whether or not I have anything of value to offer these people. Or if I do, if I'm going to be able to deliver it, what can I tell myself that will get me out there? And then I thought, I cannot wait to do this the second time. And I realized, that's it. Like, that's the perfect thing to think about when you are about to do something for the first time. The stakes must be low. The stakes are not, I will walk out on stage and I will either burst into flames or I will be the, the greatest thing anybody has ever seen. How about this? The stakes are that I'm going to walk out on stage and 30 minutes from now, I'm going to know a lot more about how to do this than I do right now. 
Like I'm just going to know more. I will have a, some experience with it. I will see how people reacted. I will be able to be better the second time. The whole point of this exercise is just to do it again. And when you think of it like that, then the first time doing something feels a lot different. It feels more manageable and more purposeful. So that's what I tell myself now pretty much every time I go and I do something new and scary is I just can't wait to do this the second time. Um, now you would, you know, you would mention writing books and you've got, you know, you've got a lot of ideas for books and then also the YouTube videos. And look, you're ahead of the game on me in, with YouTube because you have immersed yourself in that space. Uh, my great failing with YouTube is that like, I just cannot find, I can't, I can't find the place for it in my life. Like I, I, I can't sit down and watch a video and therefore I, I can't really I haven't had the time to learn what good video looks like. And so I've basically like whiffed on this very important space. And I, and I know it's a deficiency of mine. So it's great that you're absorbing it and you're getting a sense of what good looks like. And now, you know, you're going to have to like go be bad at it for a while in, in, in order to get to good. But what I can tell you about is books. And I'll tell you this. To me, the great breakthrough was organizing principle and ownable IP. That to me is how I went from having a bunch of random crap in my head to a coherent philosophy that I could write a book uh, on and then have conversations with like people like this, with people like you. Um, so what does that mean? Organizing principle and ownable IP. So, um, you know, what, what you just described to me, which was like a lot of learnings from a lot of people that you interviewed, um, those are all great, but that's like a constellation of information. And people don't, people don't like, it's hard to sell a, uh, like, here's a, here's a box full of tricks, right? Instead, what you need to sell is a specific story. By the way, just, oh, that was funny. Somebody um, was just pulling out of a parking space and there was a cone in front of the car and they literally were just like dry. The cone was just like in front of the car as they were driving down the street. That's Brooklyn. Um, so, uh, uh, so I had that too. Because I had years and years of interviewing people, and I had basically a lot of anecdotes about entrepreneurs. And then I had, and, and some lessons that I could take away. And then I had all these like fun historical stories, like one of the ones I shared with you today. But how did they all fit together? What were they? And if somebody were to say, what's your deal? Like, what are you all about? How did I answer that? Now, for a while, I was like zoning in on, well, I'm the change guy. I'll talk, to, I'll talk about change. But the only thing that I could really offer was, change is good. Like you should change. But like, okay, but that fine. Now tell me more. You know, it just didn't feel actionable or useful. Ooh. And now a now a uh ambulance just plowed into that cone and now that cone is split in half. This is really a drama, guys, uh with the cone in the middle of the street. Uh that cone is demolished right now. So um so then during the pandemic during the pandemic I I had this body of stories about change and a kind of bunch of random insights about change. And then I was entrepreneur. I, I do a lot of sales calls with entrepreneur, you know, so I'm the editor in chief, but that, you know, if the sales team is going to get a big sponsor on the, on the, on the horn, uh, you know, they'll bring me on to talk to the sponsor and, my role is always so you know Jason tell us about what you're seeing in uh, you know in entrepreneurs and small business right now and uh you know what are they worried about what do they care about 
And, you know, I, I had to kind of take this chaos that I was seeing and put it into some kind of narrative. And, and over time in sort of answering people's questions, I came up with this story. And the story was that change happens in four phases, panic, adaptation, new normal, and wouldn't go back. Wouldn't go back being the moment where we say I have something so new and valuable that I wouldn't want to go back to a time before I had it. And I am now watching all of these entrepreneurs, this is what I'm saying in like, you know, June of 2020. I'm watching all of these entrepreneurs navigate these phases, but in different ways and at different speeds. And some of them are stuck at panic. A lot of them are, but some of them have moved to adaptation. Some of them have frankly already reinvented their businesses and there it wouldn't go back. And I was finding that people, oh, and a, and a school bus just took out the rest of that cone. Now it is nothing. Uh, so that's the full circle. Uh, so, um, uh, so um, I wish I wish I was filming that. It was really quite a drama. Uh, so anyway, so um, so I, I, I was telling that story, and people found it to be true. And then I started telling that story to people who I might want to work with. Um, I was talking to a speaking agent because at the time I didn't have a speaking agent, and he was like, "So what's your deal?" And I said, "Well." Let me tell you this thing. What I've noticed is that change happens in four phases, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, by the end of it, he was like, I know exactly how to sell you. And we, we signed. And uh, now he's my, he's my agent. And, um, and then I decided, you know what? I'm going to sell a book. And I realized that the organizing principle of the book is this story. The book will be divided into four sections. Each section will be one of those phases. And each section will have four chapters. And those chapters will all be lessons that I've learned from entrepreneurs or from history that like drive towards how to manage or overcome that particular phase of change. And it is now the way in which I communicate. And that is to me ownable IP, which is to say that there are a lot of people who are in some way or another in the change management space. And if somebody's looking to hire a speaker to come in and talk to their you know, team about change management, there are a million people that they could pick. Why would they pick me? The answer is because I'm not going to just talk about change management. I have this unique insight about these four phases of change, and I can walk you through them. I've developed this myself. It is my way of understanding. And so you're not just hiring the random change guy. You're hiring the four phases of change guy. And that is a distinction that matters. And then once I have that, it also gives me the organizing principle, which is what I just told you, which is that it helps me organize my book, not into a random series of articles where every chapter is just like, here's another idea, but rather as a framework that I can move through that has a logical progression. This, I am very sure, is the reason why I was able to sell this book and the reason why I get the kind of speaking gigs that I do. Like everything about what I do picked up when I figured out that little story. And that is what I think anybody who wants to be in the business of like ideas needs. They need to understand how to take a lot of complicated information and then distill it down into a simple narrative that they own themselves, that they came up with, and that everyone can recognize as valuable and that it contains a kind of unfolding wisdom that only you can walk them through. That's so good. Uh, I think we should drop there. I think uh, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you got to get to the next thing, but that's solid. Uh, thanks for doing this. Oh, th thanks for having me. Um, uh, I think uh, we did well. The, the cone on the street did not. 
but everything uh, but everything else was great. Um, uh, if anybody wants to check out the book, it's called Build for Tomorrow, and uh, you can find it in ebook, audiobook, or hardcover uh, wherever you get those things. Great, thanks.